So 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 1, and then verses 20 through 25. Hear the word of God. King Solomon was king over all Israel. Verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of by the sea. And they ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, and 20 pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tiphia to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. He had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And as we have just sung and prayed, we ask indeed that you, by your infinite power and grace, would feed us from your word. Grant this, we ask, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I'd like to have us consider for a moment that uh, mankind is perpetually enthralled with the vision of the ability to create living conditions that would be utopian. However, this world was made by God. And man in sin, as the Bible reveals that in the book of Genesis, man's fall into sin, man in sin lives in rebellion against God. And every attempt to achieve utopian living conditions apart from God's word and revelation utterly fails. We see that in our own time. There are so many who sit uh, in offices with computers thinking that uh, they can solve the problems of the world typing away and developing theories about the way the world could operate if everyone would just cooperate. Unfortunately, they fail to take into consideration the realities of the human relationship with the God who made us. And so to be in an unreconciled state to God, 
leads us inevitably, in spite of every plan, inevitably to a breakdown, to the breaking of relationships and the shattering of peace between man and man, to the loss of the sense of well-being, both psychically and socially, and also to ever-increasing anxiety and depression, privation, and ultimately to suicidal death. Speaking in broad uh, societal terms. But here we have in the book of Kings the description of the reign of Solomon. And Solomon, we remember, is presented to us as the inheritor of the throne of David, the son of David, who is the heir, the anointed one. And we remember from the history that just preceded that there were attempts to overthrow Solomon's reign. But God has established Solomon as king in Israel. And uh, in the setting up of Solomon's reign, we see something of a foreshadowing of a utopia of a wonderful society that is typologically or in a foreshadowing way presents to us the reign of one who the New Testament speaks of as being greater than Solomon, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God's designated king, as Psalm 2 tells us. Behold, I have established my king on Zion's holy hill. But all the nations kiss the sun. And so we see then that God has established God's uh, kingdom uh, in a typological sense with Solomon. So as we look at the verses that we've read, and I may refer to some verses that in this chapter that we didn't read, I want us to note four characteristics of this typological reign of God's anointed king in Israel. And the first characteristic that I'd like for us to notice is this. In verse 20, notice in verse 20 it says that Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. Now that brief phrase is meant to jog the reader's mind. The, the, the number of Israel being depicted as by the metaphor as, as being as many as the sand of the sea. We live in some proximity to the ocean here in the east, and without too much trouble, you can make your way to the Atlantic sea coast. And you're able to walk and to walk along the beaches of the sea, and you pick up in your hand a handful of that sand. And you see how minute each particle is. And when you consider the vastness of the shores of the oceans of the world, here God says of his people, 
that they are as many as the sands of the sea, which is another way of saying that they are more than can be counted. And here we see God's wonderful grace to the nation of Israel, that he had multiplied them and answered and fulfilled his word to Abraham so many years before when he said to Abraham, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. That's Genesis chapter 13, verse 16. Again, in Genesis 22, verse 17, God says to Abraham, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. So that phrase that is specifically mentioned by the author of the book of Kings, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea, is meant to make us think that God has fulfilled his word to Abraham all those years before. And just that fact alone reminds us that though the years pass, God's word is true. 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ came and was incarnate and lived amongst the people of Israel, died on the cross for our sins, was dead and was buried. And the third day he rose from the dead. And all of these things are recounted for us. They were witnessed. And, and that was a long time ago. Many years have passed. And he, when he left, he said, I will come again. As you have seen me go, I will come again. Well, God said to Abraham so many years before, your offspring will be as many as the sand of the sea. And what was Abraham's offspring at that time? And it was an impossible thing in Abraham's mind that that could possibly come true. And yet he believed God. And so it is, here we are in the, in, in the stream of history. As the years go by, you and I have been given an allotted lifespan within that stream. And God's word breaks into that our history, and he tells us the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work for us on the cross and his coming again. And we need to have confidence in that promise. Just as Abraham believed God, we also need to trust and to know that God's word is true. But the other thing I'd like for us to notice about Solomon's kingdom is that it was a worldwide kingdom. Notice with me verse 21. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms of the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And then if you go down a few verses to verse 24, this is repeated. Repetition is important. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tipsa to Gaza and over all the kings west of the Euphrates. You kind of have to know your, your, your Bible maps a little bit to picture this in your mind, the Euphrates River. He had 
uh, he had dominion over the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. I said that Solomon's kingdom was worldwide. Now, that's not worldwide, but it is in a certain sense. It is, it is, a, uh, it is a, a dominion over all of the nations surrounding Israel. All of the nations that surrounded Israel that throughout her history had been a thorn in her side are now under his dominion. Therefore, God gave him peace. And so one of the uh, sort of signposts of the kingdom of the true Messiah is not only that his kingdom will have as many, many in it as will be more than the sands of the sea, but it will be a dominion in which uh, uh, the world is brought to under his submission. Solomon's sovereignty was over the surrounding nations. We read of the, the possession of the gates, the possession of the gates of his enemies. Um, the idea of the gates is kind of like um, in, in, in uh, ancient cities, the gates to the city were the place where the elders met and made decisions. So it was the decision-making uh, place. And so when the Bible speaks about having possession of the gates of your enemies, it's the idea that one king will take over the workings of the government of other, other nations. In other words, those nations will be brought under the government or the sovereignty of God's rule. So the surrounding kingdoms are now serving Solomon. And he receives tribute from those nations. The writer of Kings wants us again to know that God's promise to Abraham and to David is here fulfilled. These Notes about the traits of Solomon's kingdom is, are meant to tip us off that the promises that God made to Abraham that his offspring would possess, Genesis 22, verses 17 through 18, that his offspring would possess the gates of his enemies and his offspring shall, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. To your offspring, he said to Abraham, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of the Euphrates. So this defining of the boundaries of Israel are meant to say to the reader of 1 Kings that the promise of, that God made to Abraham is fulfilled. The third trait I'd like for us to notice is not only is it a numerous kingdom, not only is it a worldwide kingdom, Kingdom, but it is one in which the subjects of Solomon are happy. Note again verse 20. They ate and drank and were happy. When you read that, it, it, it just it, it, it hits you. It's, it's, you. You notice it. They ate and they drank and they were happy. They were in their homes. They were in their communities. They were able to enjoy peace. Um, when Israel was under constant attack by her enemies, the, uh, 
it was often the case that they, it would come at harvest time. And so when the people of Israel would have gathered the harvest of the olives or the grapes or whatever it was that they were harvesting, they'd have all those things ready to uh, make into a usable form. And it was at that time that the enemies of Israel, Moab and the various around the Philistines, uh, would, would raid Israel. Why? Come and take all, all, everything that they had worked so hard for all through the year. They'd just come and take it. So when the scripture says that they ate and they drank and they were happy, the idea is that that, that which they worked for all their lives long... They were able to enjoy the fruit of it. They were able to sit down in their homes and enjoy the peaceful uh, blessing of God on their labors. In fact, uh, we have that uh, uh, mentioned in verse uh, 25. Notice verse 25. And Judah and Israel lived in safety. Now, that idea of safety... From Dan to Beersheba, Dan being the northernmost tip, Beersheba being the southernmost tip, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Under his vine and under his fig tree. You, you, you know, the fruit of the vine and the fig, they were able to enjoy that because they lived in safety and peace. Solomon provided that environment of peace. What a great thing. They dwelt in safety and peace and enjoyed the fruit of their labor. Ah, wonderful. All to live in those days of happiness and joy. And then uh, the fourth uh, characteristic of Solomon's uh, kingdom is this. Prosperity. Prosperity. Notice with me verses 22 through 23. Solomon's provision for one day. And you're supposed to kind of notice that. His provision for one day was 30 cores of the flour, of fine flour, and 60 cores of meal. Some of you might be bakers. You might like to uh, make bread. Uh, That's a a great thing, great hobby, uh, to bake your own bread. Nothing like it. Uh, think of all the bread that was made with all those uh, bushels of flour and uh, meal. And then notice the meat. Ten fat oxen, twenty pasture-fed cattle, a hundred sheep, and besides uh, deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. And so when we read this description... Uh, we are kind of amazed at the plenty and the, and the fullness of the blessing of God on Solomon's table. And uh, we notice that in the early part of this chapter, and we didn't read these verses, but if you were to flip to page, uh, to chapter 4, verses 7 and following, you would have a list of the various men who were assigned as officers who were given the task of providing for each month of the year, they were responsible for one month of each year, the provisions for King Solomon. And uh, they would come and provide that for Solomon's table one month of the year. And they, verse 27 tells us that nothing was lacking. Nothing was lacking. 
And so the focus then is on the plenty and the ample provision that was made under the oversight of these officers and the districts and the division of the kingdom, the, over, the, the ample provision for the table of the king. Now that's a wonderful imagery. You all in your homes have a table. And the table is significant. The table in any home is a significant place. It's a place, uh, we, I just had uh, my mom uh, uh, lives in Lenox up the road a little way, and uh, she's 94, and we just celebrated her 94th birthday, um, and I'm so blessed to have her in, in basically good health, some failing eyesight, but other than that, she, she's in good, good health. And uh, so many of her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren were able to be there and we all fit around a great big table in the dining room. You all have tables like that. You think of the memories that are created in your home around tables, and don't ever let that go. We live in a culture where it's a fast food culture, right? Um, so often we find ourselves uh, eating a sandwich off the counter or something like that. But, but uh, in spite of the the way our society has evolved in that regard, I think it's a wonderful thing to keep that tradition up and to sit around your table with your family. You have so many memories, so much joy, so much that uh, stays with you through the years. Now, Solomon had a table, and his table was amply provided for, and everyone who was invited to his royal court had everything that they needed because the Lord caused Solomon to have great wisdom to bring about this provision of bounty for his food at his table. And so uh, we see then that they were able to do this. Again, the organization for this, if you read the first part of the chapter, the organization for this, and the collection of the food for each officer in each month of the year was made possible by the peace that existed in the kingdom at that time. And so it was a time of, in which uh, it was a prosperous kingdom. It was a king who uh, provided richly for everyone who came to sit at his table. So that's the first thing. I wanted us to know those traits of Solomon's uh, kingdom. The second thing I'd like to do is just to kind of uh, sort of use that as a springboard to, to remind us all again of the kingdom of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we notice is that the sovereignty of Solomon over the nations, that um, the nations are in rebellion against God. And their one desire is to dethrone God and to dethrone his anointed king. But they will ultimately fail because they have behind them each national ruler who attacks God and and seeks to dethrone God's revelation of his will in the world has behind him demonic forces. 
We have to remember that there are spiritual forces at work in the world, and Satan is a very real fallen angel. And he is the ruler of the world uh, under the sovereignty of Almighty God. And uh, throughout the ages, uh, Satan is the one who has led the nations to do battle against God's anointed king. So God, in his wisdom, devised a way to defeat Satan. And he did this through the sending of his eternal son, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, who became a man. He became the sinless Lamb of God. And by his death on the cross, he satisfied the claims of divine justice for the sins of his elect thereby releasing them from captivity, reconciling them to God, and bringing about the condition of peace. Solomon's peaceful reign is a type and a foreshadowing of the the work of the Lord Jesus Christ putting to rout Satan, the final destruction of Satan, will occur when Jesus Christ returns to judge the world in glory. And he will reign with his saints and as they are raised from the dead and reign with him forever and ever. But it is through faith in the victorious Christ that we are reconciled to God. So I call upon you to consider the fact that God in his great wisdom has defeated already Satan. And we are told that he put him to flight, that he put him to open shame by his death on the cross. Satan didn't count on the fact that in the wisdom of God, the innocent Lamb of God would endure death and so remove from him that one weapon which he held against the elect, their guilt. Christ has defeated Satan and thereby removed the guilt and the bondage to guilt and the death which is the result of guilt. Separation from God which is the result of guilt. He's removed that. And so I invite you to enter the kingdom of peace. The peace that Christ has established by means of his death and resurrection. The second thing I'd like for us to think about in terms of the typology of Solomon's reign is his table. Jesus is now exalted at the right hand of the Father. And do you know that he invites you to his table? You have an invitation to dine with him. What an enormous privilege. What a wonderful thing. That the king of the universe should invite us to enter into his courts and to experience there the fellowship of the saints and to sit at his table and to rejoice with him. Those who through faith in Christ have believed in him and trusted in him are given access to God and are invited into his holy presence. 
We are told that he offers a great feast. In Isaiah chapter 25, we read these words. Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and aged wine well refined. And that passage in Isaiah goes on to describe how he will remove the pale that has hung over mankind, the pale of death. And death having been defeated, he then invites us to eat at his table, which is so richly provided for. And then we read this morning the passages about Jesus being the one who is the very bread of life. And he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom the Father has sent. And when we trust him, and I invite you, and I call upon you day by day, throughout the trials and tribulations of life, to entrust yourself to your faithful shepherd, to know that he is the one who cares for you, He is the one who provides for you. And if you will come to him and eat at his table, you will experience the riches of his blessings. And Jesus himself presents himself as the one who is the bread of life, the only one who can satisfy the longings of our soul. And he invites you to eat with him. Everyone, he said to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The bread of God is none, nothing else. The bounty of God, of his table, is no, nothing else but the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Come to him. Feed upon him. How do you feed upon Christ? You believe in him, you trust him, and you will experience the fulfillment and the joy that God has made you to enjoy. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? He says, Isaiah says, listen listen diligently to me. Listen. Trying to get our attention. Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good. Eat what is good. And delight yourself in rich food. Oh, you know, there are many things all around us. They all tempt, we, our souls are tempted to find our fulfillment and our delight in so many things. And if you are one who consumes the media, it is like eating. And you will feel after you've consumed the media that you have eaten ashes. You will feel empty and hopeless. But if you will feed upon Jesus Christ, 
and eat what is good and delight yourselves in him. That will be rich food for you indeed. The third thing I'd like for us to consider is the way in which the people of God are happy. Not only are we invited to the dominion of his kingdom because of the defeat of Satan, not only are we invited to his table, but here we see a picture of the happiness of God's people. So I invite you to happiness. The people of Israel ate and drank and were happy. What a great thing. Solomon's name means peace. And reconciliation with God brings peace. And to live in peace and harmony with the God who made you is to know real happiness. The language that is described here is very much along the lines of the language that God gave to Israel when he told them to bring their offerings to the tabernacle or the temple to observe the feast. And he said, you shall come and you shall celebrate. You shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice. And you don't think about that, uh, you know, uh, if you go to your husband or you go to your wife and you say, uh, you shall rejoice, they may not just instantly rejoice. God calls upon us to rejoice. When we are in his courts, he says, rejoice. And Paul, of course, especially in his Philippian letter, calls upon believers to rejoice in all circumstances, doesn't he? And so when we come to know the Lord in this way, joy is the only appropriate response. Rejoicing in happiness. The kingdom of God, Paul said, is not a matter of eating and drinking. So here we've been using this idea of eating and drinking at a table as a metaphor for faith in Jesus Christ. Now Paul, in Romans 14, 17, says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but it is of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's working in your heart the reality of these things that gives you true and lasting peace and joy. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Every family that contributed uh, to Solomon's table didn't feel it to be oppressive, but they felt that if they were living under God's blessing and they enjoyed contributing to Solomon's table and God gave them more than enough to eat under their own vine and fig tree and to enjoy the plenty in their own homes. I think that's a, uh, something that, uh, you know, that Paul picks up on. Israel contributed to Solomon's table out of their bounty, out of their generosity. Every worship service I've ever been in, there's an offering that is made And this idea of offerings being made for the sake of the kingdom of God's advancement out of our material well-being, we we make an offering. Well, what's the one inhibition that we sometimes feel? 
We sometimes think that if we do that, we won't have enough to pay the bills. And Paul picks up on this idea of giving and receiving when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency and in all things and at all times, notice that, having all sufficiency in all things and at all times. Sort of a lot of alls there. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you have all sufficiency in all things at all times. Why? That you may abound in every good work. Abound in every good work. As it is written... He has distributed freely, he has given to the poor. So what what is this? God bestows his rich grace and blessing upon the people of God because of the reign of his designated chosen king. And they have so much that they are able to abound unto every good work, including the once a month contribution to Solomon's table. I think that's a picture of the way that God's people throughout the ages have always taken their material blessing and pushed some of them toward the kingdom, toward the king and his reign and the spread of his reign throughout the world. And so in conclusion, as we think of Solomon's kingdom and the the traits that the author of Kings wants us to notice these things, very easy as you read this, you can see he... They're like red flags. You use red flags with your email. It's like like red flags. Notice these things. These are the traits of the king of kings. Solomon was the king of kings. Jesus Christ is the king of kings. He's the greater than Solomon. So I ask you, do you have the joy? Do you have the blessing of living in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul writes to the Colossians, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us from the, from into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. You notice that? He delivered, He delivers us from the domain of darkness. All of us are born in original sin. All of us are born in the domain of darkness. We are subjects to Satan. But he's delivered us from that domain. And he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And in him we have redemption. In him we have every blessing. You know, uh, this life that we live, this mortal life that we live, is filled with Reminders of those blessings. We also deal with the trials and difficulties of life and the reminders of our mortality. But that is then again a reminder to us that the day is coming when we will sit down at the table at the wedding feast of the Lamb. The day is coming when you will have a resurrected body. And the day is coming when you will no longer deal with indwelling sin. The day is coming 
when you will be filled with more joy than you can possibly contain. When you sit with the Lord Jesus Christ at his table, and when you live with him forever and ever, enjoying that new heavens and the new earth that he has created, it's to that, the wonder and the fullness of all of, all of that that is in Christ, that he has called us to. And we have a little picture of it in Solomon. With those thoughts in mind, let's go to serve the Lord this week, reminding ourselves of the greatness of the King we serve. Let us pray.